This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted that you've joined us today. So, Thomas, what was the big news that we've heard in the last few days? Well, obviously that the Johnson & Johnson Janssen, that's a good one, isn't it? Janssen vaccination was paused this week. Yeah, you're right about that. And as a result, there's all kind of swirling, you know, comments going around about is it safe to take the vaccine, et cetera. I think it's time we talk to a medical expert, bring them back. We've had them on the show before. Good friend, Dr. John Carlo, who is president and CEO of Prism Health North Texas. He serves on the Texas Medical Association Vaccine Task Force, and he has run public health departments throughout the United States. Dr. Carlo, welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Well, thanks for having me back. We want to talk to you a little bit today about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that this past week was put on pause. For our listeners out there, how concerned should they be? Well, I think at this point, uh, and let's let's just quickly review what we have. Uh, We've received six cases in the United States of very rare clotting uh, disorders that have happened within about six to 13 days after receiving the vaccine. Um, And so out of the abundance of caution, the FDA and CDC have uh, recommended that we stop doing the J&J vaccine for now. And uh, they're going to continue to reevaluate the information um, and see if these cases are in fact related to the vaccine. You know, we have a saying in uh, epidemiology and public health Correlation is not necessarily causation. So uh, just because this these events happened after the vaccine does not actually mean that they're in fact related to the vaccine itself. So we still got a lot more information to gain at this point. So I think our level of concern should be um, really, you know, I think we should be watchful. Uh, but I think at this point, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be overly concerned about what we're seeing so far. You know, a lot of people that I've talked to go, well, you know, it has been labeled emergency use. Can you help our listeners understand a little bit about when vaccines are given emergency use and then when that is removed and they are given full, I guess, approval? How does that process work? Well, you know, it's very thorough. And, you know, I think it's important to know that for both an emergency use authorization and a full approval by the FDA, it requires substantial amount of data um, from, you know, clinical studies that have really looked very carefully, not only as to whether or not the vaccine works really good, but also that it's really, really safe. So, So even under an emergency use authorization, What we're talking about is, you know, having data of well over 40,000 individuals who have received the vaccine and have been monitored for safety. So, you know, even though that that designation may sound like um, it may be rushed or perhaps uh, not carefully looked at, it's still a very, very thorough process to make sure that we're, we're dealing with a very safe vaccine. 
So in other words, for people that are concerned that we rushed this, what I hear you saying is a little bit, now wait a minute, we're being very cautious, we're being very careful, even though there's one in approximately a million people that got doses that had problems, we're still going to really examine this, be cautious, and make sure we're doing this as safely as possible. Would you agree with that? You know, absolutely. I think there's two two things to uh, keep in mind at this point. You know, number one, this uh, situation where we have had now the reports and we're now looking at it really represents to me an extreme degree of vigilance that we have not only in getting the vaccines approved, but really ongoing reviews and careful monitoring to make sure that there's nothing out there that we need to be concerned about. So looking at the needle in the haystack at this point, you know, we've we've got six cases. This shows that our system is working and that we're looking for any potential things that could be happening. So I think it shows the degree of sensitivity that we have for looking for anything that might be of concern. Um, the second point I think that you're also making is that, you know, this, we've gotten well over 7.5 million doses out using the J&J vaccine. So, you know, six out of 7.5 million is, is less than one in a million. And, you know, there are many things in our world, including getting struck by lightning, uh, is, is actually a higher probability. So, you know, I think it's, it's still very good in terms of knowing that we've been looking for this carefully and that even at this point, this, is, this would be a very, very rare phenomenon, if in fact it is related. And, you know, uh, Dr. Carlo, I'm going to pivot a little bit. You've told our listeners in the past uh, that you participated in a clinical trial for COVID-19 vaccines, and that was the AstraZeneca. You know, in Europe, AstraZeneca also had some blood clot issues. Can you correlate between... What happened with J&J blood clots and AstraZeneca? Sure. You know, and, and I think that's something that we're all looking at to see if there is a connection. You know, keep in mind that these, these are two different vaccines made by two different companies using very similar technology, but not exactly the same. And so while we're still looking at some correlation, perhaps, from what we've seen elsewhere with the AstraZeneca and what we're seeing today with the Johnson & Johnson, these vaccines aren't exactly alike. So we just need to be very cautious in terms of how we make uh, conclusions regarding this. Uh, but the AstraZeneca vaccine is showing some things that are very similar to what we've been talking about with the Johnson & Johnson in that there have been reports of abnormal clotting following the administration of the vaccine. And, you know, even with this vaccine, the numbers have been extremely low. I think right now we're close to 100 million vaccines, and I think the the numbers are around 200 where they're looking at reported cases. So, again, a very, very rare situation. But, again, in these situations, we're still finding, you know, any signal that would represent something that we need to be concerned about. And, I, you know, I go back to it is remarkable that today we have so much a way to do real-time monitoring across the globe to do any, you know, connection of the dots. And it allows us to understand very, very quickly, really across the globe, as to what potentially could be happening. And that allows us to very, very quickly investigate and see if there's anything to be concerned about. 
Dr. Carlo, there's a buzz on social media about breakthroughs. There's a new term out there, breakthroughs, people who have had the vaccination and then they get COVID. Can you explain that? I think breakthrough may not be the right term. I think that we have to realize that even though the vaccine protection is really, really high and we should be very, you know, celebrating that, it's not 100%. And so rather than a breakthrough, I think what this tells us is the, if it's a 90% effective vaccine, then that case, that infection was in that 10%. This is Dr. John Carlo, who is no stranger on DFW Media. He's the president and CEO of PRISM North Texas, talking about this very important development this week of the J&J vaccine pause. And we're going to pick up right here with Dr. Carlo when we come back. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. John Carlo. He's president and CEO of Prism Health North Texas. He appears regularly on DFW Media and he is on the Texas Medical Association's Vaccine Task Force. And, you know, Steve, I am so glad that we have Dr. Carlo because not only of his prominent position, but also as we've kind of hit this juncture this week with the Johnson & Johnson pause, now there's a lot of speculation back in the space. Yeah, always swirling information. And, you know, the thing I like about our program, we try to be as open, honest, have integrity, and give you the facts surrounding all of this information on COVID-19. In fact, Thomas, I'm going to ask Dr. Carlo about polio. Have you ever looked and studied some of the fallout from the initial polio work? Absolutely, and and I think it's a good uh, indication. It also kind of shows uh, actually how this numbers and what we're seeing is actually even better. Early on in the polio vaccine campaign, there were there were events that happened um, in the in the orders of much much higher proportion to what we're seeing, even if this Johnson Johnson case uh, report turns out to be connected. Uh, there was side effects with the polio vaccination that was uh, really a you could almost es- essentially get the same condition of polio and paralysis. Uh, and muscle weakness as a, as a result of the vaccine itself, but to a much, much lower degree than actually uh, what you would potentially contend with if you actually got the infection. And, you know, I think this is, again, the true connection to the important point is, you know, we are dealing with a pandemic that is a deadly disease. It has unfortunately killed uh, many, many people here and across the world. And even if this condition of the vaccine looks to have some of these very rare events, it's much, much safer, of course, uh, to have a vaccine than, than try to try your luck, so to speak, with surviving an actual infection. You know, that's excellent advice. The consequences of not taking the vaccine appear at least statistically, to far outweigh it. You know, Merck announced this week also, now this isn't a vaccine, but they had studies underway dealing with some medications to treat milder versions of COVID-19, and they've halted experiment on a couple of the drugs. And we won't get into the details of that, but I think many of our listeners need to realize it's not unusual when drug companies are doing research and development 
to get results and then halt the use. Would you agree with that? And, you know, absolutely. And it, it this is the hard part about science, but it you have to be objective and you have to realize there are many, many failures uh, that, that, you know, go along the way to eventually hopefully getting you success. I think the best example is uh, around having an HIV vaccine. You know, we've been uh, contending with this pandemic of HIV and AIDS since the 80s, and there's been ongoing vaccine research. And unfortunately, many of the clinical trials have not only resulted in um, not good efficacy, we've seen side effects and concerns in those studies as well. So this is this is the normal process uh, that we go through. Um, but, you know, I do think it's important to know this is the tried and true method to make sure we get it right. I mean, it is it is truly the practice uh, that enables us to get success. And vaccines, as a reminder, is the biggest public health accomplishment that I think we can say that humans have ever been able to accomplish. Uh, it is the greatest medical innovation. It has saved more lives than really any other medical intervention. And it's also got a safety profile that's even safer than taking an aspirin. You know, that's an excellent point that you made. I talked to a person this week that said, Steve, I got the J&J vaccine. I know there's a lot of controversy, so I don't know about the efficacy. I think I'm going to go back and get either the Pfizer or Moderna. What would you say to that individual? You know, we're hearing a lot of that. Uh, you know, at this point, we don't have enough evidence to say that there that would be the right or wrong choice for somebody to consider right now. I, I do think that it's an important point that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are still well available and are really what we've been using much, much to much greater degree than the Johnson Johnson vaccine, have continued to show excellent safety and excellent protection. But, you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been tried and true in showing protection as well. Um, so I would feel comfortable uh, after receiving the vaccine that, that I did receive the protection that I think it gives us. Uh, I'm not sure if you can get an added benefit by uh, adding a, another vaccine. That's certainly something I think we're all going to be watchfully waiting to find out uh, as we go forward into the future. You know, when we think of vaccines and we think of COVID-19, we'd be, you know, really remiss if we didn't throw the variants in. And as you know, the variants are in North Texas. Uh, what are your thoughts regarding the variants in North Texas and the importance of vaccines? Well, I think it shows us first that this battle, this fight that we have with this coronavirus is is not going to go down with just a, a quick, quick and easy solution. We've got challenges ahead of us. Uh, and so the variants kind of represent a couple things. You know, first, the good news is it does look like the vaccines that we have currently do offer the same protection. So we haven't seen at least that I'm aware of in this area, a variant that might be able to escape the vaccines that we have right now. But this is the conditions that we're under right now. And keep in mind, you know, variants and changes in the virus is exactly what these viruses do. Uh, and the more and more cases of infections that are on this planet gives the virus more and more opportunities to successfully come up 
with some variant that actually could escape our immune systems or um, the, the vaccine. So, you know, it's kind of like if we're playing the, the roulette wheel and the virus is given the chance to throw 100 marbles at the board rather than one. Uh, and so the, the more and more we can do to prevent infections, the more we're going to be able to get a handle on these emerging variants uh, and hopefully not suffer consequences if the virus does do something uh, that could escape the vaccine. You know, for the people that uh, have gotten the vaccine, even talking about the normal COVID that began and all the variants, should people continue non-pharmaceutical interventions we refer to as NPIs, like wearing masks, physical distancing, washing their hands, after they receive their COVID-19 vaccine? You know, I think so, and, and here's why. I think the first part is... We don't know if you vaccinated yourself and protected yourself, whether or not you still could transmit the virus to somebody else that maybe doesn't have that protection. So there's still a risk that you may not come down with the, the, the infection yourself, but you could transmit it to somebody else. And that certainly would be something I think nobody would want, uh, especially if it's a family member uh, or somebody that we know and love. So that's the first point. You know, the second point is, even though we're saying these vaccines are extremely effective, and they are, nothing is 100%. And we do know that that coronavirus is extremely infectious. So, you know, it just makes sense, knowing that the protection is not going to be 100%. The, the answer is sort of, why not add your, your additional protection so you don't have to run the risk uh, of getting sick? And so, you know, the vaccine's working really, really well, but, you know, nothing is 100%, so I, I would keep doing the mask wearing for those two reasons. Great advice. Dr. Carlo, you said you like tough questions, so let me throw this one at you. In your professional opinion, and based on your experience, and based on Comments by the Pfizer CEO this week. Once we get our COVID-19 vaccinations, are we done or we're going to need a booster every year? Well, that is a tough question because we don't know the answer to, and there's certainly uh, no data to suggest what we, uh, what we want to know. I think it's, it's entirely possible that we're going to need to have a booster and I think the booster is either going to have to be a different vaccine that perhaps has coverage for the variants that are emerging or is just a uh, another primer to keep your immune system nice and strong, you know, against the coronavirus. I think what we don't know, though, is how quickly we're going to need that. And, you know, the annual vaccine that's, you know, common with, with influenza has very different reasons as to why. Uh, you have to get an annual vaccine is really because flu virus has changed so quickly. Um, You know, coronavirus changes is showing a lot, but not quite the same as flu. So we're on a, on a new path where we don't really know the answer to that question. Um, I think going back to our overall sort of conversation today, the good news is that we have an amazing ability in real time to gather this information and really understand it, I think, to a high level. So I feel like as soon as we, you know, see the need, we're going to know pretty quickly when that next boost is going to be indicated uh, and for whom and, you know, what are the circumstances. So, you know, again, we've got a ways to go, but I think, again, the good news is we're, we're at a place 
where we can get that communication so rapidly and, and effectively. Dr. John Carlo, Prism Health, North Texas, thank you very much. When we come back, we're going to talk about the summer in North Texas on the human side of healthcare. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today, and we have an excellent topic. As you know, spring is upon us and then summer. So when you look at spring and summer, that's a busy season, especially when you're outside. We're delighted that we have with us today Dr. Andrew Morris. He's an emergency room physician, serves on the medical staff at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano. Dr. Morris, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to jump right in. As you look at spring and summer, is that a busy time for the emergency department? Most definitely. We always see an uptick in the number of injuries over the summer. And I think this year we'll have even more in store for us because everyone is tired of staying at home and is going to want to be outside. What are some of the most common injuries that you see in the ER during that period of time? Most of the injuries we see at that time are related to recreation activities, whether they're out in the water, on the field, or even in the front yard doing things like landscaping. You'd be surprised about that one. Uh, We see fractured bones, traumatic wounds like cuts and burns, bruises, concussions, and even heat-related illnesses. We also see a fair number of water sports injuries and even drownings. Just out of curiosity, as you get through the spring, do you ever see any snake bites? Yeah, unfortunately do. I like to tell my wife in the springtime we're doing this, and it's copperhead season. So, you know, most of the snakes we see are non-harmful, but we do have our fair share of harmful snakes like copperheads, rattlesnakes, and cottonmouths. You know, if you should get bitten by a snake, uh, you know, I've always heard, hey, if you get bitten by a snake, put a tourniquet on it, etc. What do you tell our listeners if they should encounter a snake bite? What should they do? I think the best piece of advice I have for somebody bitten by a snake is to seek help immediately. You know, there's such a rush of adrenaline when you see a snake and you're bitten by a snake. It's hard to identify that snake. And that's what we want to see in the emergency department. We want to know what kind of snake bit you because most of the the garden snakes aren't going to harm you. So certainly it's hard with that adrenaline surge to remember what bit you. And we certainly don't want you chasing a snake to figure out what bit you. So I recommend anybody who's gotten bit by a snake to come in and see us. Right. Go to your nearest emergency room. Right. So as, as our listeners are hearing you talk about some of these common injuries, do you have advice as to the best way to avoid summer injuries? Yes, I do, Steve. One of the easiest ways to prevent an injury is to make sure you're wearing the appropriate protective attire. I've seen bicycle helmets prevent countless serious injuries, and unfortunately, quite the opposite without one. Same goes for helmets when you're riding dirt bikes or ATVs. Wear brightly colored clothing if you're going to be out jogging or cycling at night, too. And please, please wear a life jacket when you're having fun out on the water. On all that same note, it's easy to forget, but kids in the water need an eye on them at all times. You know, that's excellent advice, Uh, and especially in your swimming pools around your house. You take your eyes off, you could have an immediate serious situation. Yes, it only takes a few seconds. 
Well, you know, when you're outside, especially in the spring and the summer, you hear those bees buzzing, and sometimes the wasp come right by you. What should you do if you get stung by a bee? Yeah, you know, Steve, I really don't like bees and wasps, but they're part of our environment. Most people will have a local reaction to the sting. You know, you might have some pain, swelling, and redness at the site. And you can use the edge of a credit card to gently remove a bee stinger. You should never squeeze it because that can inject more venom into the wound. Um, Ice and an NSAID like ibuprofen with antihistamines usually do the trick for most people. But if you develop a rash, hives, you see the redness is involving more than just that sting site or any difficulty breathing at all, you should seek help immediately. So is that true also for, say, an ant bite? Absolutely. It applies to ants and all those other critters. The rashes can usually be managed, but if you'd, like I said, if you see any progression of that rash, more than just around where it bit you, you need help immediately. And I do recommend calling 911 if you have any difficulty breathing at all. You know, we talked about the ants and the insects But you gave great advice. When you go outside, especially in spring and summer, to do landscaping, you have to also look at the plants. You want to make sure you stay away from poison oak and poison ivy, or you may get a bad case of that. Would you agree? Absolutely. And you always hear some people say, well, they're not allergic to poison ivy or poison oak. Next day, though, they suddenly realize that they are. You know, for our listeners out there that may have to work out in the heat. Maybe they do some kind of commercial landscape work, or maybe they do construction work. Another thing they have to be concerned about is heat stroke. Can you tell our listeners what generally assigns or symptoms of heat stroke? Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm glad you brought it up because there's a difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke. They're both serious. Heat exhaustion, we usually see patients with a rise in their body temperature from being out in the heat. You know, you feel dehydrated, you start cramping, you may feel nauseous. You're just not feeling well. With heat stroke, we usually see a higher body temperature, even around 104 degrees or higher. And the big difference is the body's nervous system goes into a disarray. We see symptoms like disorientation, headache, confusion, altered consciousness, and even seizures. And one serious warning sign is when you stop sweating while you're out in the heat. When this happens, it means your body's no longer cooling you down naturally, and you might be in trouble. So if you are out with a friend and you start seeing kind of disorientation and you've been out in the heat a lot, what should you do to help your friend when you see and you are you know, worried that they may be having a heat stroke? Yeah, if, you ha- if you're out with somebody who's having heat stroke, you need to get them out of the heat immediately and start hydrating them. And if you feel like, you know, they're not acting right, they're disoriented, you should seek help immediately. And obviously prevent any heat-related illness, you want to stay hydrated, but that involves more than just sipping water. You know, I would consider alternating water and an electrolyte replacement drink like Gatorade or Powerade if you're going to be out for a while. And then avoid excessive alcohol drinking because that can also prevent injuries too, right? Uh, But it'll also dehydrate you pretty quickly. And listen to your body. If you start to feel sick when you're out in the heat, get somewhere cool and start hydrating. And make sure you're protecting your skin with a hat, sunscreen, and sunglasses as well. Sometimes people have to work and they have to be outside. So to our listeners that are routinely out in the heat, can you give them some helpful hints on how they can help prevent a heat-related illness? 
Absolutely. You should take frequent breaks from direct sunlight. Get in the shade as often as you can. Take breaks and drink more than you regularly would when it's not uh, hot outside. You know, you mentioned when we were talking about riding bikes, especially children, to make sure they wear a helmet. But you're an emergency room doctor. You've seen about everything. What do you advise people in the summer that want to get out on that Harley and ride their motorcycle? What are some things you recommend they do to prevent serious illness or even death? Yeah, that's a great question. You've got to wear your helmet. I mean, helmets, I can't overemphasize enough. They just really prevent serious head injuries. Um, Wear protective clothing, even though it's hot outside. It's going to help you in the long run if you're in an accident. And please don't drink and drive. And if you're out riding a bicycle, and, you know, we we just heard about, tragically, a former Mavericks basketball player, Sean Bradley, who is actually paralyzed now, because a call actually hit him while he's riding his bike. Any suggestions from you based on your professional knowledge that people that ride bikes should do? Yeah, I recommend cycling in a bike path. You know, that we have lots of parks in the area. You can mountain bike and street bike. But if you're going to take to the streets or if, you, if you're going to ride on the street, I recommend staying in the bike lane and biking with other people. That way, if you get seriously hurt, you have somebody else there to help you. You know, we've talked about some of the common injuries we see in the spring and the summer in the emergency department. Are there others that maybe I've overlooked that you see, and maybe not frequently, but for example, I know people like to go camping, but I'm sure you see people that get burnt by campfires as well. Absolutely. We see all sorts of stuff related to camping. For me, personally, it's too hot to go camping in the summer. But one thing that I would really caution people against is that when you start doing work outside in your home, it's nice outside. It's a good time to work outside. Be really cautious when you're working on a ladder or at great height. We see a lot of falls from people who place their ladders on uneven surfaces or don't have somebody helping them stabilize the ladder. You know, another thing I think for our, for our people, even something like this, when they go to see their kids play volleyball or Little League, is to wear sunscreen. I know you're not a dermatologist, but I do know that you need to protect your skin also so that later in life you don't have some type of cancer. Absolutely. Sunscreen is so important. I love watching my two kids out on the field playing soccer Um, but we have to chase them down with the sunscreen. It's so important. I'm fair-skinned myself, so I'm always sure to use it. Otherwise, I'll burn in about 10 minutes. But you're right. Just a little bit of prevention goes a long way in preventing skin cancer. Let me ask you this. What is the, as you just peruse your mind, whatever comes to mind, what is the number one top issue that you see in this seasonal form of injuries and reasons people come to the emergency room? I think the biggest thing we see this time of year are sports-related injuries. Any particular sport? It's really all the outdoor activities. Now, obviously, in this area, you know, sports are huge. You know, we've got indoor and outdoor facilities. But we see a lot of soccer-related injuries. You know, we've got people coming from all over the world to play soccer in Frisco at Toyota Stadium. I've actually taken care of people all, all over the world with injuries from that location. 
We also see, like we talked about earlier, from cycling and boating. Boy, and from his perch at the emergency room at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Plano, Dr. Andrew Morris, who you've been listening to, has seen it all. And he's going to come back and tell us more ways that we can prevent injury this summer next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Andrew Morris, who is an emergency physician at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano. And we're talking about how to prevent summer injuries. On the sports injuries, do you mostly see sprains or do you mostly see fractures? We see a little bit of both, actually. And they're both serious injuries that usually require follow-up care if they don't get better on their own. Now, most people have a sprain at some point in their life, but we recommend coming in to be checked either way. Let's go back to the lake question. I, I just am sitting there pondering and realizing what you see over the course of the six or seven months of summer in Texas. What are some of the lake-related possible points of injury that we just wouldn't think about? You know, beyond wearing the life jacket, what else can happen out there? Well, you've got to be really careful with watching other boaters. You know, we see boat crashes, people on jet skis that get injured being thrown from jet skis or running into each other. People run their jet skis and boats into docks or up their trailers or even fall off the boat or truck, get it off, off and on the ramp. So the question about the ants, Dr. Morris, what about fire ants and kids? That's got to be a big one too, right? It sure is. And fire ants in Texas are hard to get rid of. We even had some inside my house last summer that took forever to get rid of. And you just got to be vigilant. You can watch where you step out in the yard, especially or out on the sports field. And it only takes one step, as you know. You'll know pretty quick when you step in those fire ants. You know, I've lived in Texas and Oklahoma most of my life. I did a few years in Colorado, and I was surprised at the number of brown recluse and black widow spider bites that happen in Colorado. How bad are spider bites in North Texas? Oh, yeah, we still see our fair share of spider bites. You know, unfortunately, it's kind of like the snake bites. You don't want to go chasing that spider, obviously, after it bites you to identify it. We don't see as many black widow bites in this area as they might in Colorado. We still see them though, but we do see brown recluse bites and those can be pretty darn nasty themselves. Yeah. Talk about a brown recluse bite because I know somebody that had a real long prolonged problem with one. Yeah, you nailed it right there. So the brown recluse bite causes this painful necrotic ulcer, meaning you've got this spider bite that starts out looking like a raised bump. But as the days go on, your skin starts dying and you get an infection there. And they can spread and last quite a while. I've even seen some require skin grafting later on. How would you suspect you might have a brown recluse bite? That's a good question. Honestly, it can be really hard to tell what bit you just based on the look of the wound initially. It's that dying skin that's kind of the telltale sign of the brown recluse bites. But if, if there's any concern at all, if you feel like, you know, the, it's more than just a simple insect bite, I recommend going into your local emergency department so a qualified physician can check you out. And is that one of those 
things where the clock is ticking so that if you let it go, you let it go, you think it's going to get okay and it just progresses and then you wait two or three days too late that you've crossed a threshold that's going to really compound on you? Yeah, it really is. We want to see most of these bites, infections and injuries as soon as possible so that we can prevent complications. What do you do for a brown recluse bite? You know, it depends on the severity. Most require some pain medications like ibuprofen. Uh, Every now and then, though, we'll need to start some antibiotic therapy for it. And also, sometimes we need to provide referral to the wound care center for the patient. Let's go back to the swimming pool. Tell us something to shock us about the swimming pool so that we really get this in our minds. Yeah, unfortunately, in our line of work, we do see drownings, and that ranges from little kids to adults. But, you know, I think if you ask any emergency room physician, they've seen the child that comes in lifeless from a pool where they were swimming, you know, at a family get-together where they had, you know, a great family, and everybody just assumed that the other person is watching the kid. But there are tragedies every year, unfortunately, from kids being left alone in the swimming pool. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You know, Dr. Morris, you hit on such a good point. I have a good friend, and he and his wife and two kids went to visit the grandparents, and they hadn't seen them in a while. He was unloading the car, and the grandparents and others were out by the pool. And, of course, the first thing the kids wanted to do was get in the pool. And as he was coming in, he noticed they all had their backs to the pool talking, and his little girl was bobbing up and down. He dropped the suitcases, jumped in the pool, pulled her out, and said, y'all aren't watching the kids. People can actually drown while adults are distracted. Absolutely. And great for him and that little girl that he did that. That's amazing. A lot of parents might think if they give their kid a swimming mask that it might be a benefit that they can see better underwater. And yet I know that the mask issue is prominent. Do you see drownings from masks filling up? I know personally when I give my kids a mask, they want to stay under the water longer, (laughs) which usually means I've got to put a mask on myself and go with them. (laughs) There you go. There you go. That's a good way to handle it, actually, right there. Don't don't let the mask be a babysitter, right? That's right. Absolutely not. Be involved. Yeah. Great point. What about, we're in springtime right now, what about allergic reactions? Allergic reactions in general kind of fall under what we've talked about with our insect bites. You know, we see a lot of pollen in the air right now, a lot of ragweed. A lot of people are having allergies, A lot of people moving to this area who, you know, we welcome them to Texas with this pollen. So they don't know what, you know, what to expect with our allergy season. So I recommend taking an over-the-counter antihistamine if you start developing seasonal allergies. But if it's anything more severe, like you're wheezing or you have difficulty breathing, you should go to the emergency room and get checked out. All right. So that's that's the tipping point is if you have trouble with your respiratory system. Absolutely. Okay, now you can't talk about summer in Texas. Obviously, you guys already have without talking about the heat. When you're talking about preventing heat stroke or heat fatigue, electrolytes comes to mind. What kind of electrolytes do you recommend? Yeah, I recommend, you know, if you're going to be out in the heat for a long time, drinking a lot of water does a good job of replacing just the water, but you're losing things like sodium through your sweat. So, you know, sometimes it's a good idea to use electroglyc replacement drink, just like Gatorade or Powerade or your other favorite sports drink. 
if you're going to be out for a long time. If you went outside and you drank water and you were pretty exposed to the heat, I mean, a really hot cranking it down Texas afternoon, if you drink alcohol, how does that compound and how much does that compound the loss of those things that are important to your body? Yeah, great question. Essentially, alcohol is a powerful diuretic. So you're taking your already dehydrated body and compounding it. You're compounding the problem. Exactly. Would it be a factor of double, triple? I mean, what's the magnitude of it? It's hard to say. I don't know if there have been studies to actually show the magnitude, but definitely a causation. And, you know, when you're talking to people, it's summer, as you said at the very beginning. We want to get out. We're tired of this C word that we've been dealing with for a year. Yes. And we want to have fun, and often fun outside is involving alcohol. If you were to talk to people that, like you said, you've gone down the hall and told a family that their loved one was killed in a traffic accident and they're no longer going to ever be on the planet again, what would you say about how they should view and use alcohol responsibly? Yeah, you know, alcohol can be used responsibly, just like you said. You know, if you're going to be drinking more than a drink, um, you really shouldn't be operating powerful equipment like a boat, any type of watercraft or dirt bike, et cetera. And you should really have somebody with you who's a designated driver. And a lot of people forget about that with, with boating. What would you recommend we have on hand in our homes to be prepared? The Boy Scout motto, right? Be prepared. What should we have in that be prepared kit at home? Yeah, I think for any basic first aid kit would include bandages, antibiotic ointment, or an antiseptic rinse, as well as an ice pack, some basic elastic bandages like an ACE wrap. You might also consider an antihistamine and an anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen in there. And if anybody at home has a serious allergy, they really should talk to their doctor about being prescribed an EpiPen to keep on hand. That's Dr. Andrew Morris. He's with the Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano. Thank you so much for those great tips on keeping ourselves safe this summer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.